Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Again, we want to welcome live stream with us this morning and our family who's watching wherever you are. Glad you could join us. And those who've made the trip here this morning, uh, our Labor Day weekend as we've... um, uh, interesting weekend, interesting weekend, the history of the weekend, and then getting ready to go back into uh, schools, some of us into kind of a normal work environment, so we're glad that you can be a part of that. Um, I want to take us back to, there's a series, it's a short series I'm on, and we're kind of in the middle of the series, and the series is around one text, and it's found in Philippians chapter 3, so please would you go there with me. Philippians chapter 3. While you're turning to Philippians chapter 3, I want to make mention, I mentioned this last week, I might mention it again in another week. I'm starting something I've never done before. Uh, that's all, I, I get excited when I start something I've never been down this road before. It's called SOD, S-O-D, School of Discipleship. And if you think about SOD, you, know, you need, need to prepare the SOD, the ground, in order for the planting of whatever you're planting in it. If you plant it on too hard a ground, it doesn't work very well. You need to prepare the ground. And it's Saad is a discipleship mentoring type that I'm going to be working with those who are between grades 9 to age 29. So I'm looking at really the emerging generation to be able to, and it's those that are, what is it, is those that really are leaning into believing God's got something special for their life. They really believe that. So it's not a program to try to you know, get you revved up. It, you're already revved up. It's, it's a ministry. It's going to be a discipleship ministry for those that are really just excited about what God's got planned for their life. And some will go into some, some may come out of that into full-time ministry. Some may come out of that into just wherever God places you in your careers that there's going to be this renewed zeal. God did a major, major work in my life when I was 17 years of age, and it changed the entire trajectory of my life. I wasn't called into ministry until I was 20, but I was 17 and something happened. Between the age of 17 and 20, very strategic, very, between whatever those ages, when you feel God's hands on, is on you, that next little period is strategic, and that is exactly where the enemy of your soul tries to abort the dream God has for you. He will try to abort it, and that's why we want to uh, cut it off at the past. So anyway, Saad, I've made mention of it. Just get a hold of me. I'm going to be starting it at the end of this month. Philippians chapter 3, verse 13, if you have it, would you read together with me with one voice? Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Father, we do ask you to give us the same spirit as the Apostle Paul had when he made that declaration that there's an it out there. There's something that you've called us toward that, God, we would be all in. As was mentioned, it's a goal. It's a prize. And so I forget the past and I strain towards it. It becomes my obsession. Let it be. Help us to understand what your word is saying this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week... Uh, I 
began to talk about a guy by the name of Elisha, guy in the Old Testament, he's a prophet. The story from last week, and the reason in talking about Elisha, I could talk, as our text was in Philippians 3, the text written by Paul, I could talk of Paul's life because he really did live what he just said in, in that scripture. He really did live that. If matter, you read that chapter, and I did it again this morning. I just went back and very slowly read the entire chapter 3 this morning. And it's all about what that verse is. That really is the, the, the capsule of what Paul is trying to say dramatically changed his life. If you were to go into the book of Acts, and we've done this as a church staff, we began about three months ago the book of Acts, and we just began one chapter at a time going through it. We just began to talk about it, and that's what God was showing us. We get to chapter 9, you see Paul is, he comes in on chapter 9, he kind of, he's introduced in there, and, and you just begin to see God's call on his life and how his life moved from, he was a very professional man, a very successful man, very renowned man, into a different, very different direction as God's hand changed his life. Paul could have resisted it, but he submitted to it. And Paul would later say, listen, I count it all, I count it all joy. I count it all joy. Because he would talk about what I've gained is nothing compared to, you know, my gain, what I've lost, there's no comparison. And the old life, even though everybody would have strived to have been like that, here's what my new life. And guess what his new life was about? He, he was beaten, he was whipped, he was shipwrecked, he was left for dead. He said, it's tough. He says, man, there's no comparison because I'm exactly where God wants me. Don't we all want to be there? Don't we all want to be there? And I'm going to suggest that whether you're young or old, you, as long as there is breath, you are still in the game. You're still in the game. So, um, you know, as uh, John Ortberg wrote the book, it's not over when it's over, it all goes back in the box. And it's not over until it goes back in the box. And, of course, our box, you know, like when you play a game, it goes back in the box. Our box, well, then it's over. Then our eternal rewards. But until then, it's not over. It's, we're in the game. You're all in the game. Those watching us, you're live for a reason. So we're in the game. I want to just, last week, Elisha went to a king, and the king Elisha was trying to show the king what was going on inside his own heart. And when the king shot the arrow into the distance, it was God saying, I can do anything beyond what you could ever imagine. And our series here is called Invading the Impossible. God will do beyond what we could imagine. However, the second instruction was, take your arrows and strike them on the ground. And when he did, he quit. He quit premature. And Elisha says, even though God could do abundantly beyond, he won't. Because you're not there. Because you won't let them. Because you have succumbed to the law of average. You are content to be mediocre. You're content just to blend, content just to blend in. And just be with everyone else. You're content. There's a stirring in my heart when I read that. A stirring is, God, I don't want to just be in the law of average. I really want to be everything. As Paul says... He's been called heavenward for something. So I want all of what that looks like. And had the king taken and, and struck from his quiver and you know, kept striking and striking until there was nothing, I used the expression last week, just, I visualized nothing left but a toothpick. He would have received great things. Now, I'm not talking prosperity. I'm talking about he would have accomplished great victory. He quit too soon. That was the whole story. 
It was a revelation of what was going on inside his own heart. Jesus then told the story in Luke chapter 11. And in Luke 11, he talked about going and knocking at midnight. And it wasn't because the person's just badgering the other one, knocking, knocking, knocking. The reason he got what he wanted, the reason he got what was needed was because of the word importunity, because of his nerve, because of his boldness, his unashamedness to step into it. Living a Christian life is not about living to be the most modest person. I think we should live in modesty, but when it comes to believing in the faith for what God has for us, let's not pull back, hold nothing back. So we come into today and we want to continue the thought. I want to actually move into Elisha's predecessor, uh, who is Elijah. Now, Elijah is a very interesting character in his own right. And you pick up a story, and it's the very first point I want to bring up this morning. My first point is called loyalty. And you pick up the story of Elijah, who was before Elisha. And Elijah in, had just finished having this tremendous victory. He had gone toe-to-toe with King Ahab and built the altar on Mount Carmel. Uh, flooded it with water, then stood back, and this is in a time of drought, stood back and fire came from heaven and lit it up. And it was just a marvelous demonstration, a marvelous display of God's splendor, the splendor of it all. And it made an impact, all right. And Jezebel, Queen Jezebel, threatened him at that moment. He's tired, he's hungry, he's beaten down, he's... He's exhausted, and now he becomes despondent, despairing, depressed. She comes, and a spirit of an, Queen Jezebel has a spirit of intimidation. And she drops the spirit of intimidation over Elijah. And Elijah very despondently begins to walk with his servant towards, and the Bible says, and you, and you can read about uh, some of the things that take place in 1 Kings chapter 19. There's a scripture, maybe before we do that, in Malachi chapter 4, it talks about Elijah, Malachi 4, 5, and it says this, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Now, Elijah had a heart for the new generation. That's why I believe we need to have a heart for the new generation. But it wasn't just about a man, it was also about a generation that would one day come. I wonder, could it be here today in 2020 and 2021 as we look into next year? Could the generation now be upon us? A new generation that will turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the hearts of the children back to the parents. Could we be in that generation? Could we we be at the brink of this prophecy turning a whole generation into a passionate generation whose hearts are after the heart of the Father? who are there to serve the Father, not just serve themselves, but serve the Father, not simply be entitled, not simply be uh, about me, but my generation was a lot about me. I'm in the boomer generation. My generation was a lot about me. And so I don't lift a finger, and I don't criticize the younger generation because my generation really seated the bed for what happened to them. And so we have to resist that. It's not about me. It's about the Father. It's about the Father. And so we have a beautiful picture here of Elijah. He's kind of a spiritual father. And he's a picture of, of our Heavenly Father. But Elijah, after this whole ordeal on Mount Carmel, he's walking with his servant. We don't know the servant's name. 
1 Kings 19. We don't know the servant's name. But he walks over to the edge of Horeb. It's called Mount Horeb or Horeb Desert. And it's a 200-mile desert. Like it's just wasteland. Just nothing but rock. Wasteland. And Elijah with his servant comes to the side. He's, 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 he's depressed. He's down. He's feeling down. He's had a great victory. But he's, he's, he's under, again, spirit of intimidation. He's just been beaten down in his spirit. He comes to the edge of the desert. And he turns to his servant. Because Elijah's eyes are in the desert. And he's, he's going into the desert. He's going across that desert. And there's nothing good that goes out, takes place in those deserts. And he comes to the edge of the desert. And the servant's with him. He's tracking with him. And this is where a servant makes a critical mistake. Elijah turns to his servant and says, you stay here. I'm going on. And the servant says, okay. And stays. That was his mistake. What the servant needed to be saying is, where you go, I will go. If you're going into that desert, I'm going into the desert with you. Elijah, you need, you need companionship. You need my strength. You need what I have to give. I will not allow you to go there. I will not allow you to go that journey alone. I will go with you. Even though Elijah told him, remember the story of Elisha where Elisha told him to strike? He didn't give him instructions how many times. And he was mad because he didn't keep striking. In the same way, Elijah turned to his servant and says, you stay here. The right answer was not yes. The right answer was, where you go, I will go. I'm with you. That's what a servant does. A servant tracks with, does not back off, does not pull back. And Elijah, so the servant backs off and Elijah would go into the desert. It would be a very difficult journey for that one man in the desert. He needed his servant. The servant needed to back him up. He needed to be loyal. And he wasn't. And it's interesting, you never hear the servant mentioned again. He disappears off the pages of Scripture. He's not mentioned. Had the servant gone with him, had the servant remained true and loyal, the servant would have received a spiritual inheritance that comes from being loyal to a father. But he didn't. And he doesn't get the inheritance. I wonder how many, here's the question, how many of us have forfeited, how many people, how many men and women, children of God, forfeit your inheritance because you quit too premature? You don't go that extra distance. And so we don't get the inheritance. We don't actually receive what God has fully planned. We get blessings, there's still blessings, there's still the trickle down, but not the victories that are before us. We have to look around and we have to realize that's probably happening more often than we like to give credit for. That often there's not full, absolute victory. Loyalty knows the most valuable things in life cannot be taken. They can only be received. Because of his affection and allegiance, Elijah, Elisha, Elisha, who now we're going to go to, we're going from Elijah, get them mixed up sometimes, right? Elijah, who told a servant to go with him, the servant said no, but he would later have a servant, Elisha. Now, he's our guy. He's the guy we're studying. And Elisha did not make that mistake. When Elisha was called, Elisha stayed with him to the end, even though he was told not to. He wouldn't be turned back. 
What a story. What an amazing story. This is the story. How do we invade the impossible? You invade the impossible by not turning back. You invade the impossible by defeating all odds against you. You invade the impossible. When you take that position, you say, I am in it 100% for you, God. Not partially, not when it's convenient, not Sundays only, not for two hours here, not for a bit here. My life is committed. Not talking about full-time ministry. It is full-time ministry. But I'm talking about where we are fully committed to Him. I want to take you to the second point, the first being the loyalty we talked of. The second is refuse to settle. Paul again said in Philippians, here's our text, here's our overarching text. Philippians 3.13, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, I strain towards what is ahead. Now I want to talk about this. The one thing I do, in order to get that, where I'm called heavenward, forgetting what is behind, I strain towards what is ahead. Here's what's being said. I, I believe, I find that many keep longing for a new future while we're still holding on to our past. We long for the blessings, but we aren't letting go. We desperately want God to create something new in us, and so God do a new thing in me, but we refuse to tear away from something that's holding us back. And so we continue to be yanked back. And if we're not careful, our future, listen to this, our future will not merely, our future will merely be an extension of our past. We'll just have a little bit more than what we had yesterday. But it won't be a brand new future. It won't be a brand new creation. It'll just be a little bit better of what yesterday was because we dragged yesterday in. The prophet Elisha, 1 Kings, and we're going to grab this text. If you have your Bibles, I invite you, we're going to look at this. 1 Kings chapter 19. So go there. 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. If we have that up there, maybe we can just, uh, let's read this together. We're going to go right down to the end of 21. Okay, so 1 Kings 19, 19. Uh, everybody, can you just, uh, just don't, we're not to project our voice, but we can speak. So let's say it together, verse 19. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Japhat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate it. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. This is in contrast to what we just talked about, the unknown, the unnamed servant we talked about earlier to Elijah. Uh, this picture here is a picture of Elisha starts off with him in the fields and he's plowing with 12 yoked oxen. That's a lot of plowing. I mean, think about it. He had the 12th, he was, he had the 12th one. I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, that's 12 times 2. If there's two oxen in each one, that's 12 times, because they were yoked together, and he was in the 12th group of yoking, if I'm not mistaken. Even if it could be translated that that 12 could be split down, there were, there were teams of two, and there was only six pairs, that's still way over the top of the size of farm operation he was involved in, and he's plowing. 
And we have to believe that in his heart, his heart was already turned towards God. But this is what he did. This is what he does. And the story picks up with Elijah coming over to him. And there's no words of what we know. No words have been spoken. So Elisha's just out there. He's a farmer. He's a farmer. And farmers farm. And Elijah came over with his cloak. And the cloak is a picture of a mantle. It's a picture of the calling. It's a picture of God's hand upon you for purposes for the kingdom. And Elijah comes up as the prophet and he places the cloak over top of the shoulders of Elisha. And he turns around and walks away. Can you imagine? Okay, I just want to freeze frame. Because I'm thinking, okay, first of all, Elisha's probably really sticky and, and dirty and hot. He's plowing, he's in the field, right? It's his property, he wouldn't be plowing somebody else's. And so it's his property. Somebody came and put this mantle on him. I, I, I don't want to read into it. I know when God began to stir my heart and I knew it was God, there was such an excitement in my heart. God, could it be? And I began to look trajectory. God, what is it that you've got planned for my future? What have you got planned? And there was butterflies and fear and anxiety mixed with excitement and, and potential opportunities. It's all kind of mixed in there. Maybe you have felt that. Elijah's walking away, and he gets distance, and Elisha chases him down, stops him, and says, I'm coming, but first, I need to go back and kiss my mommy and daddy goodbye. Well, my, my mom and dad. I need to kiss my mom and dad goodbye. Now, that's kind of a strange part. And then what Elijah says, Elijah kind of does that brush off. He says, oh, whatever. Do what you must do. Whatever. But this is, what again, another moment similar to what we talked of last week where Elisha with the king, Elisha never gave more information than was needed because he was revealing the heart. Now, a heart's about to be revealed. Elisha's heart's about to be revealed. He's the young guy in the story now. And Elijah's the older one, the, the spiritual father. And Elisha, he says, let me go back and kiss mom and dad goodbye. It wasn't that his, his focus was on the past because he understood what he was about to do. Listen to this. He understood that he might never see them again. He understood that the past was no longer going to be a part of his future. It doesn't mean that you disown family. It doesn't mean all that stuff. But if it means if your past takes you down a road and you have to make a choice, are you going to be faithful to God or are you going to bow out and go back? He, already, he was making a decision right there. If it ever came to that, he would be faithful to God. If he ever came to, like that servant with Elijah, if he ever came to the edge of the desert and he had to make a choice, it's easier to go back and be with your family because you might die out there with the prophet who seems crazy right now. It's easy to go back. And when he says, I need to go back and kiss mom and dad goodbye, what he was in essence saying, he was in essence saying, listen, I'm burning my past because my future is going to be fully into the hands of God because it's hard to follow God when we're still hanging on to the past. So he goes back, and that expression, kiss mom and dad goodbye, he goes back and he takes all the oxen, he slaughters them all, distributes the meat, he takes the, the wood from the, the plows and it becomes the wood to burn the meat and he gives those who are in need food. And then he catches up to Elijah. He says, I'm yours. We're doing this. 
we're doing this. It's not I disregard mom and dad, but it means that if God calls me back here, then I will be 100% here. But if he never calls me back here, I will be 100% wherever that is. And here's the thing. If we don't do that, I find if we don't do that, and life starts to become more difficult than we think we can bear, it's way too easy to go back. And often it does become more difficult than you can bear. I mean, it's great when things are going great. You don't even want to look back. But when things aren't going well, and it's unraveled, but you know that you know that you know, God is with you. You know that you know that you know that if you keep, as Paul says, but one thing I do, one thing I do, I have to leave that past. I have to leave, and I strain towards this because there's the goal, there's the prize, there's what I'm called heavenward. And I can't get there if I don't burn some bridges back here. And, Eli, and Elisha was faced with that very situation. It's the, it's the situation of I have to let this go. I have to let this go. Elisha, his actions was a declaration and a determination. There's no turning back. There's no turning back. It fits into the whole theme. And it's not that we don't have a contingency plan. It's not that, you know, he burned everything back there, burned all the bridges. And I believe in some contingency plans. But I only believe in contingency plans that uh, whatever contingency plans we might have, whatever alternative plans we might have, always need to be pointed toward the future that God has called you. Never as an alternative. So any contingency keeps feeding into that, keeps feeding into that. So if the plan doesn't work, the vision is still in place. And I stay true. I stay true. Acts chapter 7. Put the text up here for you. Verse 3. God told Abraham, who was still living in Mesopotamia, God told Abraham, here it is, verse 3. Leave your country and your people. That's the first instruction. Leave your country and your people, and I'll show you where you need to go. Now, I can't show you where you need to, again, if it were me, I'm, I'm a fairly administrative-minded person. I want to know where I'm going. I drive my wife, my kids when they were young. I used to drive them crazy. I had plan trips. I had more fun planning trips than the actual trip. I had everything laid out, where we were going, where we were going to be in different parts of the trip. It's just, I wired that way, some strange way. I don't know why. And, and so I would just, I'd have all that all figured out of where we were going, and then we start the trip. God doesn't always work that way. He told Abraham, I want you to start out now and say goodbye. And Abraham started out, and God says, I'll show you as you go. I'll show you as you go. Follow me. Be faithful. Trust me. Trust me. And that can be hard. So he says, leave your country and your people and go to the land I will show you. Abraham could not possess the planned future if he remained in the happy, settled past. Let's look at what Jesus talks about. He says in Luke chapter 9, verse 57. In Luke 9, 57. As they were walking along a road, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, I'm just going to put a pause there. If it was me, I'd be going, great. we got great things planned. I'd begin to tell him all the wonderful things that we're going to do together. Jesus does not do that. Jesus replies... Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, you'll have no home. You'll have no home. 
Didn't make it very inviting. Then he goes on, verse 59. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now, none of the commentators believed that the guy had just died. The expression was an expression, let me stay home, my parents, I need to look after things at home, and then when all that is done, kind of my, when my retirement years come, then I'm yours. That's kind of what he was saying. And Jesus responds, verse 60, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Does that seem harsh? Well, if you think that's bad, go to the next one, 62. Um, 61. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. So he's not burying it. He's just going to say, like, I'll say goodbye. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. And I can't help but wonder if Jesus wasn't thinking about our story. The story of, Eli of Elijah and Elisha. When he said, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back as fit for service in the kingdom. No one who continues to keep that there as an alternative. But they say their followers all out for Jesus. They will not accomplish the kingdom purposes. Jesus had some pretty strong, strong things to say about that. He even has a strong one. Here's, here's this one. I found this even harder to swallow. Luke 14, 26. If anyone, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Hate seems so harsh. Jesus understood the language of exaggeration, that it was needed to understand extreme cost in pursuing what it is to call, to be called. Jesus chose this language to create an understanding of what it means to love God with all your being. First commandment, love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, body, strength. Love him with everything. And so he uses extreme language. It is an inescapable, it's inescapable that you will be forced to choose between God and the things you hold dear. It's an inescapable fact of kingdom living. There will come a time where you have to make a choice. Because others are saying, let's go this direction. And you're like, but God's not calling me there. And these choices need to be made. And when you make those choices, it will look like you hate them. Now, those parents here, you've had kids. Who, as parents, have never had that moment where the kid, you, you, had to, you had to redirect them on something? Your kids love you. They care for you. They think the world of you. They look up to you. But when you did that, they said, I hate you. Did they really hate you? Well, they might have thought so at the moment. But in, it was a hatred in comparison to You've just challenged me. I hate, I hate the decision you just made. And Jesus, now we go back to what Jesus said. He says, if you follow me, the language of exaggeration, people will think you hate them. Wow. It'll look like you don't like them. It'll look like you don't care. In contrast, it'll look like that. They'll say, well, if you really loved me. And it'll look like you hate there's a tendency to go back. He was saying there are those sometimes who will keep you trapped in the past and you will have to be willing what God's got planned for your future. I know from my own situation, I grew up and I was uh, fourth generation of a business. My great-grandpa 
turned it over to my grandpa, turned it over to my father, and I was the only one to take over. And I remember in those early years when God's hand was upon my life, the pull. I didn't want that business, but if things got bad where God was calling me, then I could at least go back. And what a breakthrough when that was no longer there. Because you will look like you hate that, but it's not. It doesn't have to be. It's just that you so are committed in love to Him. There's a difference between your identity being rooted in your essence and your identity being rooted in your success. Let me explain. What you do comes out of who you are, but who you are must exist apart from what you do. If my existence is in my job, if my existence is a pastor, if my existence is because of my, my, my title pastor, then when the pastor's taken away from me, I lose my identity. When I retire, I lose my identity. My identity has to be based in what he's called me. And I don't mean pastoral. I mean his call for kingdom work based on that. And then it doesn't matter. The things that I do flow out of that. Because if failure takes place, then people don't know who they are. They allow circumstances. And we talked about the joy of the Lord. We talked about Philippians. When we allow our circumstances to direct their joy, to direct our life, that is in contrast to what God has called us. God's calling directs my life. And in that, then, now circumstances can't rob me of that. No person can rob me of that. Circumstances, my poor health can't rob me of that. Grievances can't rob me of that because it's not based in those things. It's based in the call. And so only that can rob me. And we place our call. I want to close with a... Uh, there was a movie that came out years ago. And I... Um, the movie, the title of it was, it was back in 1997. Anybody here, you were not born in 1997? Who here was not around in 1997? Okay, good. If any of you know Jim Bridge, he put up his hand in the first service. In 1997, a movie came out, and it was called uh, Gataka. It was a story of two brothers, and it was a, kind of a bit of a sci-fi uh, were two brothers, and the younger brother, when he was born, baby, he was genetically altered. And it was, a, and it was based around that they were going to create a perfect utopial world, and they were going to genetically modify babies who were stronger, could live longer, smarter, everything. Like, they were just perfect. They were genetically perfect. And we all have our flaws, you know. We, we have, and actually, the one brother, he had his flaws. He he had some very real flaws that were part of his makeup, as we all tend to. But the genetically altered one didn't. So the story goes on, and again, the two brothers, the brothers are Vincent and Anton, and, and the story goes on where uh, the older brother, who's not genetically altered, the younger brother's stronger, and of course they get into the whole competition growing up and growing together, and they both love to swim. Frequently, when they were boys, they would go out to the ocean with the rough waves, and they would swim out into the ocean. They were both good swimmers. But always the younger, genetically altered, was always the winner. He was always stronger. He could always do it better. I mean, he was genetically perfect. And it graded, and that and other things graded on the older one. He could never be like that, never be like that. What was the point? What was the point of living if he could never be like an entire generation? And it was a whole generation of these genetically altered people. He could never be that. He was flawed. The story hits this huge climax point where in the movie, the older brother challenges the younger genetically altered brother out to competition swimming. 
in the ocean. They go out in the ocean and they start swimming. And they swim and they swim and they swim. And they swim for some time. And the, the boat's swimming strong. And then the, older, the younger brother genetically alters watching the older one. The older one's not slowing down. The older one pressing on, pressing on. And he's becoming concerned. And there's a few little moments while they're out there swimming. You pick up on the, the altered brother would ask, how are you doing this? How have you done any of this? Because he's so strong out in the ocean. How are you doing this? And the older brother would just keep swimming. The younger one would catch up again. He would say, well, where's the shore? We're getting out too far. We got to go back. The altered one. The older one would dare him. Would dare him. Listen, we're, we're, we're getting close to the other side. The other one, it didn't make any sense because they're in the ocean. They're not getting close to the other side. And the older one would start off and the younger one would catch up again. And the younger one would say, how far do you want us to go? The camera begins to move in. When the genetically altered brother, he cries out, how are we going to get back? How are we going to get back? The zooming in of the camera comes right in on the older brother and there's this eerie, sinister smile. They're way out in the choppy waters of the ocean. And the older brother says this, you want to know how I did this? That's how I did it. I never saved anything for the swim back. I never saved anything. And it was a sad story. I look at that story and haunting words of someone who has nothing to lose. Someone who has nothing to lose and in their vengeance inflicts it on another. Perhaps when we are aware of our imperfections and flaws, we then maybe are best suited to invade the impossible. When we are well aware, here's all my flaws and problems, I have nothing to lose. That's what Paul was saying. I have nothing to lose. I count it gain for everything that's been lost. I count it gain. Even when he talked about having, you know, uh, a weakness of the flesh, he said, but I count it for God's great gain. Because I have nothing to lose. It's all out. Nothing to lose. After all, what is it we have to lose? We're on this earth for a while. The series we did a while ago, I'm in the world, but finish it for me, but I'm not not of the world. This world doesn't own me. This world doesn't give me my identity. It doesn't label me. I'm in this world, but I'm a child of God. And my home also consists of an eternal home. That's my home. If our failure is our inevitable future, if our failure is our inevitable future, then fail boldly. Perhaps the life we long for is beyond the point of no return. Amen? Perhaps the life we long for is beyond the point of no return. Settle for nothing less. Hold nothing back. Do all out for God. When it comes to prayer, it changes the way you pray. That prayer is not just a token. It's not a moment comes much, much more. comes to the place when it comes to service, volunteering, helping out, getting involved, doing kingdom work. It's not just whatever. It becomes way more than that. Way more than that. When it comes to whatever the spiritual discipline is, all of a sudden takes on a whole new, whole new way of living. And then Paul says, straining heavenward, 
to what God has planned for us. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.